And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, team. It's not a surprise to any of us that we live in a time where we are bombarded by information, and yet real knowledge is as rare as a snowball in Atlanta, Georgia in July. (laughs) We are drowning in information, and yet we're starved to death for knowledge. We are plugged into the information superhighway online, and yet we're becoming truly disconnected from reality. There are more books and papers and electronic research that are published every day, every day, than one can read in a lifetime. An old anthropology professor at Emory University, my professor, Dr. Bobby Paul, used to say, those with little knowledge or partial knowledge are the most dangerous people on the face of the earth. And if that's the case, then we are having a whole lot of dangerous people walking around. Here is a fact. Knowledge without wisdom is dangerous as a car without a steering wheel or without brakes. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is applying knowledge to the situation. If 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians letter teaches us anything, it teaches us how to balance knowledge with love, how to balance freedom with responsibility, how to balance grace with accountability, how to deal with what is clearly forbidden in the Word of God and what is not. That is why so many of you have been saying to me, this is the most relevant epistle, and it is. It's relevant for us today in the 21st century more than any other time. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a chapter not, listen carefully, not about biblical morality and the issues that are non-negotiable in the Word of God. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians is not, I will repeat, is not about godly living and obedience to the Word of God. It is not. 1 Corinthians 8 is not about matters that have been settled in the Word of God long ago, and they need not to be discussed. It's about issues that are not plainly forbidden in the Scripture. It's about issues that are left up to the individual believer to deal with under the guidance of the Holy Spirit with wisdom. Things that we decide for ourselves, for yourself. (laughs) Back in the 80s, I was invited to participate on a commission called Human Sexuality Commission. I began to look into it. I wanted to see what this is all about. 
And as I looked at it, I realized that the agenda has already been written and the conclusion's already been reached. <laughs> and there's only another person and me, uh, the only two people out of 24 on that commission who have biblical views. All the others did not. And this was a church. It's a mainline denomination. It's a big commission. In other words, I realized that I am being railroaded. And my name was going to be used as at sea. We had all views represented. Even that crazy Yusuf was on that commission. <laughs> I said, no. They called again. I said, no. And they called a third time, and I said, no. I finally tried to explain to the chairman, who really was having a hard time even comprehending what I'm saying. Uh, I said, what the commission is going to study are issues that have been settled in the Word of God long time ago, and they do not need to be discussed. He couldn't comprehend it. He couldn't comprehend it. To him, everything is open for discussion. Everything is open for, for discussion. Everything is open for interpretation. Everything. Today, there are so many evangelical churches and so many evangelical pastors. And some of you, when you go out and you see this and you get, you get shell-shocked and you write to me and say, you've been saying this? No, I, I just heard it for the first time. So what I'm telling you is relevant to everyone who's listening to me. There are evangelical churches and evangelical pastors who believe that most things, if not all things, are not black and white. They are muddy gray. Everything. Muddy gray. And here in chapter 8, Paul is answering the Corinthians' question regarding what are the genuinely, genuinely gray areas? What are the matters that are open for discussion, open for interpretation? What are these genuine matters that are not forbidden in the Word of God, are not forbidden for believers, and how to deal with them? I've shared with you in the, in the past more than once about how my formative years, my growing up years, we're in a legalistic church. And I'm going to explain that because we are torn between two extremes even today, although we're going in one direction. Uh, in that church, they did not distinguish between things that are clearly scriptural and things, the rules that are made by man. They would not distinguish between the two. And so once I began to read, I learned how to read when I was eight, nine years old, and I began to read the Scripture, I was searching diligently. I'm trying to find in the commandments that thou shalt not smoke, and thou shalt not drink, and thou shalt not play cards, and thou shalt not dance, and thou shalt not go to the movies. And I was genuinely searching diligently in the Scripture to find these, because from the preaching that I've been hearing since I was a little boy, I, th I thought they were there. They have to be there. I was convinced they were there, and I couldn't find them. One preacher 
would lean over the pulpit, and sometimes I think he's pointing his finger at me, and say, television or hell vision <laughs> The cinema. What will you do if Jesus returned and you are in the cinema? <laughs> to this day, I'm afraid Jesus is going to come. And I won't see the end of the movie. <laughs> the truth is, my wife and I hardly go to cinema. But little as it is, still, even as an old man, I'm just terrified. This stuff stays with you. Beloved, here's the problem in the 21st century church in the West, in the West particularly, and it affects everyone at the sound of my voice. Most people fall into one of the two extremes. Sadly, there are few who are balanced. Thank God for many of you here whom I know personally so have balanced Christian life. But when you go outside, you're going to find the two extremes. Legalism, on the one hand, that focuses on issues that are not necessary for salvation. On the second hand, the other hand, the other extreme, <laughs> those, and this is, by the way, the vast majority of evangelicals today, is license under the guise of grace. It's really cheap grace. License to immorality and justify it under cheap grace. Now, beloved, listen to me. We have little balance between legalism and license. The legalist, on the one hand, thinks will not make it to heaven unless they keep certain rules, unless they keep certain regulations. On the other extremes, we have the blatant flaunting of the freedom into promiscuousness. Now, you must understand that liberty and freedom are at the very core of the Christian faith. Can I get an amen? amen? In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, here's what Jesus said, If you hold on to my teaching, you really are my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you what? 2 Corinthians 3.17, Paul said that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But freedom and liberty does not, does not, does not, does not, does not mean that we have an unbridled license to sin. That does, that's not what freedom means. Freedom in Christ never, never, never means freedom to sin. <laughs> But here the Apostle Paul is saying more than that. He is saying even in the gray areas where we have freedom, we are not totally free. Even in the areas that are really up to the individual believer to handle, we're not totally free. Why? Because it may cause others to stumble. It may cause others to sin. It may cause others to fall. 
This is not legalism where people say, this is a list of do's and don'ts and you must follow them. But if you don't follow this list, you're not saved. No, and a million no's. Listen to me. Your spiritual temperature is not measured by keeping a man-made rules. You are to live a spirit-filled life, not a rule-bound life. Can I get an amen? amen? Listen to what Jesus said about the legalists of his day called the Pharisees. And if you can't see the sense of humor in our Lord, I don't know. I can't help you. He said, they forbid the ant. Now, that's not your ant. That's aunt, by the way. Yeah. I'm talking about the little insects. They forbid the but they swallow the camel. <laughs> Think about this, swallowing a camel. He said, they lack a cup. It is so clean on the outside, sparkling, but it's filthy on the inside. He said, they are like sepulchers. And in the Middle East, you know, they paint those sepulchers white. They look nice and white from the outside, but inside they're full of dead bones body. If you, I mean, you can't get more graphic than this. Pharisees had all black, very little white. <laughs> Licensed people, on the other extremes, have neither black nor white. Everything goes. Everything's acceptable. Everything comes under freedom. Everything is, uh, even the, 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 the things that are forbidden in the Scripture, they allow it. The buzzword among the liberal evangelicals today is this, ambiguity, ambiguity. Just be ambiguous. So we don't know. We're not really sure. <laughs> they don't care who stumbles and falls because of their flaunting of their liberty. They don't care how many people are they misleading in their fault with their false teaching. They don't care who gets wounded and hurt because of their behavior. They don't care how many people are hindered from coming to the true faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter to them who gets confused. It doesn't matter who departs from the faith. It doesn't matter who is led into sin because of their example. They say, I'm free, I'm free, and I'm free. But the freedom that Christ gives us is freedom not to sin. Can you say that with me? Freedom not to sin. Say it again. Freedom not to sin. That's the freedom that the Bible talks about. Because Christ uh, when he came and he set us free, before we came to him, before each of us came, before I came to him, we were slaves to sin. Now he sets us free. That I can look, I said, no, I don't have to do that because God gives me the power. The Holy Spirit empowers me to say no. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he gives us three reasons as to why we are not free to act and behave as we want to. Three reasons. Look at them with me, please. He tells them first that knowledge alone is not complete. Look at verses 1 to 3. 
Then he said, secondly, not everyone has the same knowledge. This is verses 4 to 7. And finally, he says, wounding the con- listen to this one, wounding the conscience of another because of carelessness is a sin. Let's look at these. Although I'm going to focus so much on the first one because the second two are really self-explanatory, but I'm going to come to them. But most of my focus is going to be on the first one because it's very, very important. He is saying knowledge is not enough. What's that mean? Here's the problem. There is not a single person in this room who got worried sick today or last week or last month or any po- at any point or worried sick that after church you're going to go and eat food that was offered to idols, Right? Anybody is worried about food offered to idols? Raise your hand. Now, I, I knew it. I knew it. You're probably saying, what in the world is this? What in the world is this? What is this food offered to idols? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you more about idols <laughs> and these false gods than you ever want to know in your lifetime. So the, the, treasure it all. It's going to last you for a lifetime. The principle is this. Listen careful. The principle is this. When it comes to issues that are not specifically forbidden in the Word of God, how you are to exercise your freedom matters. Listen to me. (laughs) All of my years in ministry, all of my life literally, I have heard believers, Christians in churches argue about drinking alcohol, or about what kind of movies to go to or go to movies at all. I heard believers argue about the music style in the church. Listen to me. There are churches that are split over the music. And that, thank God, we have a wonderful team who balance everything. Listen. I have seen people split over dress code, dress style. I'm going to say more about this down the road when we come to other chapters, particularly 11 and and 9 and, and so on. I'm going to say more about this. The list goes on and on and on. People split over and get in, want to get into a fight over these silly things that are not forbidden in the Bible. Are you with me? A whole lot of churches, they fought over these things that are not necessary for salvation. But let me first of all give you a context, because you won't understand the principle until you understand the context, the historic, the cultural context. Until you understand what is Paul saying to them, you will understand how to apply it to us. (laughs) Let me tell you a story, okay? Just... Think with me. In a Greek or Roman culture, where the Corinthians were living, um, it was filled with polytheism. Polytheism, polo means many, C.S. God, many gods. They were believing in many gods. I mean, they had a God for every day of the week. (laughs) They had a God for every month of the year. 
They had a God for every need. They had a God for every circumstance. Um, they were up to their eyeballs in gods. Trust me. I mean, they had a God for war. They had a goddess for love. They have a God for travel. They have a goddess for justice. Similar to some people who have a saints for everything. I remember as a boy, um, I lost some money, and Catholic neighbor said to me, he said, you got to pray to this particular saint. He'll help you find it. Because <laughs> he's the one who specializes in finding things. But these deep, they, had a, they had a God for everything. But they're not only polytheistic, they were polo <laughs> dominic. What does that mean? They believed in many demons. Demons. They believed these demons, these evil spirits, are just too many to number. They had a demon for fire. They had a demon for water. They had a demon for the air. They had a demon for food. And they believed that all of these demons are really working hard in order to possess them. Think about this. Think of the terror in which they were living. The demons are going to possess us. They're going to come and go inside of us. But how are these demons possess people? Here's what they believed. That these demons, first of all, they get into the meat. <laughs> and so when you eat meat... And now we're going to give you heartburn when you're eating lunch today. But when you're eating meat, they're already possessed with demons, and you eat it, and you become possessed. Isn't that amazing? The terror that they lived in. They think this is the fastest way a demon spirit can possess you is when they get in the food. <laughs> when you are under this terror and fear of evil spirits, you will try to do anything to avoid them. You will do everything they tell you to do and so, so that they would not in, enter you. And this is how the entire culture, the Roman culture, which was influenced by Hellenistic or Greek uh, culture, they were living. So what is the solution to that fear? Man-made solution, not Bible-made solution. What's man-made solution? Ah, oh, you take this meat, you offer it to one of the gods or the goddesses first. That way you really strike two birds with one stone. <laughs> you basically please the god, make them happy with this offering, and get them off your back. And secondly, the gods to whom you're offering this meat ahead of time, they will cleanse the meat from the demonic forces. See how Satan had them bound? As a matter of fact, this kind of meat that is offered to idols was the most highly preferred, highly valued meat. <laughs> That's a good meat. Uh, why? Because it's already been cleansed from evil spirits. This is how it worked. Listen carefully. The pagan worshiper divides his offering three ways. One portion 
goes to, as a burnt offering. The second portion goes to the priest in the pagan temple. The third part, the worshiper keeps. Is a problem. Is a problem. What's the priest going to do with all that meat? <laughs> Just think about this. If 2,000 of you all brought me one pound of meat this morning, well, don't, I don't eat much red meat, so don't do that. But think about it. Even if I give to the pastors and we share it, and we're still too much. We can't, what do you do with the meat? So the priests, clever as they were, <laughs> priests are always clever, they take it and they will sell it for money. Where do they sell it? They sell it to the butcher shop that's in the temple. Now, there are other butcher shops, but they sell it to the one in the temple. Remember, this was the best meat. This is the best steak. This is the best rock. This is the best T-bone steak. I mean, so if you are looking for good meat at a discounted price, where do you go? You don't go to the average shop, butcher shop, you're going to go to the butcher shop that's inside the temple, to whom the priest sold their meat. There's even more. The best restaurants in town, the best country clubs in town, uh, the best dinner parties in town, they all served this type of meat that was bought from a butcher shop in the temple. Here was the dilemma for the new believers in Jesus Christ. When they come to Christ and they've been set free from all this, those believers who are living in Corinth is a dilemma for them. It was impossible to avoid eating that meat. It's everywhere. <laughs> if you went to your neighbor's wedding, if you went to your neighbor's dinner party, <laughs> if you went, yeah, you, you're going to be offered this meat offered to idols then should the Christian believer go along to get along and just eat and don't worry about it? Or should they cut themselves off from the society altogether? This was a dilemma. It was a genuine dilemma for the believers in Corinth. So you understand now when you read the Scripture, you understand these people were not just frivolous about it. This was an important issue. I remember back in 1982... I still remember it like yesterday. I had a house guest who happened to be a very high government official in the Middle East. I mean, really one of the highest echelon of that uh, government. And he happened to be a Muslim, and he does not eat pork. He came and stayed with, in our house for two days. A professor at Emory University, who was one of my professors, found out about it, heard about this. He said, can I interview him for my academic paper? He said, that is a guy that I really love to interview. Well, my professor was Jewish. He doesn't eat pork either. The Muslim doesn't eat pork. The Jewish doesn't eat pork. And I tried to figure out the time to get them together. The only time I can get them together was for breakfast at my house. And so I invited them both. My precious, gracious wonderful wife. I mean, she cooked a storm for breakfast. <laughs> a breakfast fit for kings. A breakfast I've never seen in my house before or since. 
<laughs> because she knows I'm not a big breakfast eater. I mean, she cooked pork sausages. She, she cooked, cooked ham quiche, uh, bacon. I mean, as I said, I mean, it was fit for a king. And it took me just a few minutes while they're not touching their food. They've never touched their plate. And my sweet wife said to them, what, you don't like my food? <laughs> and I was wondering why they're reaching for the toast and the jam and they're leaving the food. That she went to a lot of trouble cooking. Back to the Corinthians. You get that when you, when you get home today. <laughs> Some sensitive Christians confused the buying and eating of meat that is offered to idols, and they refuse to eat it. They refuse to eat meat that's offered to idols. They wanted nothing to do with it. Why? Because it, 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 it brought back to them that terrible memories of their former pagan life before Christ. Above all, they did not want anyone to think that they have reverted back to their previous life before Christ. On the other hand, there were some Christians who couldn't understand what the hoopla is all about. <laughs> meat is meat. Uh, uh, to them, there's nothing. God, these gods are nothing. They're not really gods at all, and they're not evil spirits. They're the ones to whom Paul is writing. Are you listening? Say amen. Because this is to whom all of you, in fact, I would say without pre presumption, the majority of you should be listening to. Because he's writing to whom he called mature believers. And thank God this church is filled with mature believers. So this word is for you. Paul is writing to those Christians who are grounded in the truth. He's writing to believers who, whose conscience is clear about these issues that are not forbidden in the Scripture. These are gray areas. And here Paul appeals to the mature Christians to have no who have no qualms of conscience about those gray areas. He's writing, and he's appealing to them, and he's pleading with them. What is he saying? Do not let your liberty to be your focus. You should be more concerned about those who are less mature in the faith. Do not focus and flaunt your freedom at the price of wounding the conscience of others. Let your love for the weaker Christian override your rights. If you truly love the weaker Christian, then you will not use your liberty to crush them. Even in these things, that are not forbidden in the Scripture, that are left to the individual discretion. Do not use your freedom as a club to beat others over the head. Do not uh, go out of your way uh, to offend them. Don't go out of your way 
to confuse them. Don't go out of your way to cause them to stumble. Don't go out of your way to have those who have weak faith, who are weak in the faith fall. Don't let your knowledge of the truth make you feel superior to them. But he's saying more than that. Listen carefully. He's saying your knowledge of the truth regarding pagan gods is good, but it's incomplete. You might be mature in knowledge, but you also should be mature in love. Your doctrine is solid, uh, but there is a crack in your love. Uh, your mind is sound, but there is something wrong with your heart. You get an A for knowledge, but you get a D for love. Please listen. 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 Listen carefully. Don't miss what the great apostle is saying. He is not. He is not. He is not minimizing or belittling knowledge. In fact, many times in the epistles you hear him praying for that they may increase in knowledge. They may increase in knowledge. I mean, he is not belittling knowledge. But he is saying that knowledge must be tempered with love. Knowledge is vitally important, but, not, but do not use it negatively. In fact, the Lord himself bemoans the fact that his people are dying for lack of knowledge, as he says through the prophet Hosea. As I said earlier, when we have lots of information and little knowledge, we're dangerous. Most statistics show, listen to me, Americans, listen to me. This is an American statistics, but if you're watching around the world, I guarantee you it's not far from anywhere in Europe or Australia or, el or elsewhere. This is Gallup poll. Sixty percent of Americans do not know what the Holy Trinity is. Sixty-six percent could not tell you who preached the Sermon on the Mount. Seventy-nine percent, that's nearly 80 percent of the population, were unable to name a single Old Testament prophet. Beloved, that's the culture we live in. In fact, vast number of college students thought that the epistles are the wives of the apostles. Knowledge that idols were not real. Knowledge that food offered to idols was not uh, contaminated with evil spirits. All of that is wonderful. All of that knowledge is right. All of that knowledge is good. But knowledge in itself can be turned inward on itself. Flaunting liberty in Christ can make knowledge offend the weaker brother or sister. Hear me right, please. Hear me right. A balanced Christian believer is the one who balances knowledge with love. Can I get an amen? amen. Paul said, knowledge puffs, love humbles. Verse 3, it is impossible to know God and not love Him. And God knows those who love Him, and He knows them by name, and He calls them by name. 
So knowledge alone is incomplete. Secondly, he says, verses 4 to 7, not everyone has the same knowledge. I think this is a fact. You already know this. Not everybody has the same knowledge. Paul agrees with the mature Christians, <laughs> with the mature believers, that there is no such thing as gods and idols and demons and all that stuff. I mean, there are demons, but they, they, not, they don't affect the believer. These so-called gods were just mere reflection of the one who designed them. You know, they had designer gods like we have designer genes. They're just designer gods. <laughs> These idols were only impersonation of demonic forces that deceive people thinking that they are gods. Listen to me. For believer is not one for the believers, there is only one true God, and this one true God revealed Himself fully in Jesus Christ. All other gods, all religious systems, all the, all the all false and fake, and they're not the truth. Only one truth is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I knew that. You see, to the mature believer... To the mature believer in Corinth, Paul said that you are on the right track. You have the right belief. You have the right concept. You have comprehended the truth. Now, carry that right knowledge over and make it into right relationship. Verse 4, not all Christians have the same knowledge. Why? Because there are all different stages of walks. There are a lot of different stages of walks. Some people have been walking with Christ for many, many years. Others were just new ones. So we all have different knowledge. Believe it or not, within the Christian community, there are such things as late bloomers. Now, if you had kids, you'll understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> Some of them are late bloomers. Some of them get it right away. One of the most consuming thoughts for me every week, and many of you know this, is, is, is the struggle that I go through. It's not necessarily opening the Scripture and rightly dividing the Word of God, but how to apply it when you're preaching to theologians, and then you are preaching to 10-year-olds who are taking copious notes, and forever I'm spending time saying, God, help me. How do I communicate the message so that different people in different walks of life can get it? Through the years, I have found born-again believers who have come out of Roman Catholicism are the hardest against Roman Catholicism system, religious system. It's just my experience. I'm sure it's probably some of you too. They're really angry. The fact is, they never told me that I must be born again. And they just said, if you come in and you do this and you find it. And then they become believers in Jesus and they're so turned on and they get so angry. And I said, don't get angry. Just give praise to God. Thank Him that He brought you to Himself. Amen? Even though the act of eating is neither morally nor spiritually wrong, yet, say yet, Yet, it becomes wrong when I deliberately and carelessly let it violate the weaker conscience of another believer. And that is why, a few years ago, we began to 
serve juice with the communion because we realize that there are some people take offense at the alcohol, even though the Bible is very clear. When Jesus gave them a cup, it was oinos. In the Greek, it was, it was wine. It was fermented. But nonetheless, we don't want to cause anyone to stumble. And so years ago, we, we, we started this, and, and we offer everything so that nobody feels offended, nobody, especially those who came out of alcoholism. Himirat, please. Knowledge may tell us that something is perfectly acceptable But love says, restrain your freedom for the sake of your weaker brother or sister. Thirdly, finally, wounding the conscience of another believer, weak believer, is a sin. It's a sin. Verse 8, neither eating nor not eating these types of meat (laughs) will commend us to God. It's not going to affect my relationship with God if you eat or you don't eat. (laughs) Doing things that are not forbidden in the Word of God is not significant, has no significance in our relationship with the Lord. Mark chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus said, It is not what you eat that defiles you, it's what, come, what, come, what comes out of your mind. Acts chapter 10, when the Lord showed Peter a vision of unclean food, and, 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 and by Jewish standards, it's just unclean, and God said, Eat it. <laughs> Don't forbid what God allowed. If an immature Christian or a weak Christian sees a mature Christian doing something that they, not the Bible, but they, the weaker ones, think is wrong, it could wound their conscience. Sometimes God uses, and I said that a few weeks ago, uses the voice of the Christian conscious, the enlightened conscious, as an instrument of the Holy Spirit. If the believer's conscious is weak, it's because that brother or sister is just weak in the faith. And therefore, the mature Christian is mature because he or she is a strong in the faith. And therefore, they should have better judgment. And that is why the strong has the responsibility not to offend the weak. Not the other way around. Let me repeat this. The strong has the responsibility not to offend the weak. And that, my beloved friends, requires sacrifice. Sacrifice. I'm going to tell you this as I conclude. True story. There was a a family who loved hiking. The father particularly would take the family to hiking trips. And one day, they arrived into the picnic place, and he said to the family, he said, you wait here, unpack the lunch, get it ready. I'm going to get up that steep one. I'm going to go on my own. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to come back very soon. And so he goes up, and halfway through his climb, he heard a voice that literally, I mean, it terrified him, paralyzed him. And the voice said, Daddy, take the safe path. I'm following you. It was his little boy. 
What do you think the father would do? Oh, keep on coming, son. You're free to do that. We'll do whatever you're free. You're free. Come on, come on. Come up if you want. No, not on your life. Why? Because the knowledgeable father is also a loving father. Don't split those two. Don't split them. A knowledgeable father is also a loving father. He turned around and immediately picked up his boy and went back. Beloved, being free in Christ is not sufficient to allow you to do things that may be harmless to you, but devastating to others. Think about this with me. Think about this with me, everyone. Daddy, I'm following you. Mommy, I'm following you. Bible teacher, I'm following you. Church leader, I'm following you. Pastor, I'm following you. You stand to your feet, please. Holy Spirit of God, you probably have taken your own words that are recorded in the Scripture and applied them 2,000 ways to 2,000 different people. Whichever way, O Holy Spirit of God, you have applied that word to each of us, please allow that application, that implication, that conviction be borrowed so deep into our minds and hearts and will so that we begin to live not just with knowledge but allow this knowledge to be tempered with love for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.